0: Is there anybody else here that is a little scared by this parable? I mean, I am. When I read these words, woo. it is a chilling picture. I mean, is it possible that it will be like this, really? That at the end of time, at the end of days, when it really ends, uh, when even the Mayans are there, uh, that Jesus will appear as now the judge, no longer the Savior, and separate us one from the other on the basis of whether our heart was aligned with his passion for the needs of people. Will, will it be like this? It, could it all come down to things as simple, frankly, as whether or not we invited someone in? <laughs> whether we shared the good we had with other people in need? Could it be that simple. And I think that the puzzlement that we sometimes feel when we hear Jesus teaching this way is because we live in a context so very different from those who first heard this parable and for whom what Jesus said there would actually have made even more sense. In ancient times, the kind of kindness that Jesus describes being shown by the sheep in his story was a kindness that involved much more than optional charitable deeds at the end of the year in tax season. The kind of actions that Jesus describes or pictures being done by people of, of feeding and clothing and visiting and welcoming people were the very fabric of consideration by which life in the ancient world was held together. In a world of restaurants and uh, department stores, how many of you have been to one of those in recent days? A restaurant or department store. In a world of credit cards and water fountains, it is admittedly hard for us to understand the context to which Jesus is speaking. Unless you've ever traveled by backpack. in a a foreign country, unless you've ever had your home suddenly ravaged and destroyed by a disaster of some kind, unless you've ever broken down in a bad neighborhood um, late at night, unless you've had these kinds of experiences and they've permeated your soul, it's easy to forget what it is to be a stranger needing a hospitable hand as Jesus describes here. Not so in ancient times. Everybody got this in the first century. Unless you happen to be among the very wealthy few, and we're talking the 1%, okay, who had camels and, and traveled wherever they went with great big packs of provision. Unless you were in that very tiny slice of society, and almost nobody was... Then wherever you went in this life, you depended upon the community of care that you met from other people. You didn't have the capacity to carry things with you. You couldn't take great, great. you didn't have credit cards. You didn't have, uh, you know, Lexuses. You didn't have things that you could, could transport your supplies and resources were. So you just depended upon the grace of people you did not even know to give you something to eat, to offer you a drink from their well to provide you with a cloak or clothing if, you, if the weather suddenly turned bad or a roof over your head if you were uh, not close enough to your destination. They would invite you in. If you were alone and you were sick in the day before hospitals and 24-hour pharmacies and prescriptions by mail, you you had to rely on the fact that somebody would think to visit you If you were a a widow or an orphan in the days before pensions or publicly funded care, it was curtains for you if somebody didn't open the door and take you in and let you in. If the job market went south and you were thrown in debtor's prison, as, as often happened, it was only the grace of people who thought to come and bring you food that would keep you from starving to death in a debtor's prison. As a matter of practical necessity, every ancient civilization practiced hospitality on a scale that is hard for us to grasp today. In fact, it goes on still in many parts of the world in a way that's hard for us to get unless we've spent time, extensive time there. But few cultures saw hospitality as not just a social convention but a religious devotion the way the ancient Jews and then the Christians did. The Old Testament law and the prophets, the teachings of the prophets, regarded hospitality as one of the highest callings of the people of God. I mean, it was up there just below worship as a calling, as a primary mark of the people of God. And this value is so deep in Jewish culture that it gets transmitted even further through Christian culture as it develops. And we see in his letter to the Romans and in his letter to the Philippians and in his letter to the Colossians and in his letter to Philemon, St. Paul urging the followers of Jesus to remember to demonstrate their faith by a welcoming care For whomever they met, share with God's people who are in need, Paul writes in Romans 12 and verse 13. Practice hospitality. And he uses a word there that suggests the kind of outgoing care that shepherds were known for when they found lost sheep. The first Christians really got this mandate. Okay, I mean they they made this their signature in, in in the midst of the of the Roman Empire in a pagan world. In fact, uh, one of the scholars of early Christianity, a very well respected scholar by the name of of Amy Oden, an historian, came across nearly three hundred pages of direct quotations from church leaders in the first and second centuries urging or describing the practice of an outreaching, risk-taking, stranger-embracing kind of hospitality. And if you read just in, in in the pages of the New Testament, just... Open up, maybe even now, to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You, you will read how the early church, right after the day of Pentecost, began to take on this practice. How they would share with with those who were in need. And the result of that sharing with people in need and that welcoming of people led them to enjoy the favor of the whole community around them such that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'm quoting Acts two. Verses 2, verse 47. The Lord added to their number daily those being saved, those who saw the, the, the hospitable heart of the church and wanted to come in, wanted to be part of that circle. Um, the church understood that God called them to give the world a convincing proof that his heart was open to them. His heart, God's heart was open to the world and he was inviting them to come into a new and better kind of life. We still need that new and better kind of life today. There are a lot of people you know who are not sitting here this morning, who hunger for it. They may not have the words for it. They may not associate church with it, but they hunger for it. We know that Americans, um, alongside of, of maybe few other peoples in the world, hunger spiritually, pursue a life with God, a connection to God, desire to know about life beyond this life. Uh, We know from, from study after study that people profoundly admire Jesus, that they feel that if the world could be lived by the ethic of Jesus, things would get better than they are today. They know they need spiritual power, but very few of these people, relatively speaking, are darkening the door of a church. And in increasing numbers, they're not entering the doors of church. Why is that? Why is it so different today than it was in Acts in the first century when the church enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those coming in to be part of what God was doing there? Why is that happening? Um, I, I came across a... A listing recently of the top 10 reasons that people give for not doing church. Um, And I want to share that with you. And I've substituted the word worship. I've I've taken out the word worship and I put in the word wash to make this a little bit more vivid. Because if you think about it, worship is like a spiritual cleansing process. You know, I come to this place on the weekends myself and I sing the songs and I read the, the scriptures and I feel God's spirit just washing me clean again and, and, and freshening me and renewing me and readying me for the new week to go after life in a more creative and healthy way. So, so, so let me give you these top 10 reasons why people don't do church. Say they don't do church, but, but instead of saying worship, let's, going me use the word wash and see if this, how much sense it makes to you that people are not coming because of these reasons. Number 10, people say, I I don't come because I was forced to wash as a child. No more washing for me. Number nine, people who wash are hypocrites. They think they're cleaner than everybody else. Number eight, there are too many different kinds of soap. I couldn't make up my mind which one was the real one. And so I don't use soap at all. I don't do religion at all. Or I used to wash but it got boring. Uh, How do you expect me to wash when it's such a yawner? How do you expect me to worship it when it's such a yawner? Or number six, Hey, I wash faithfully every Christmas and Easter, whether I need it or not. Number five, none of my friends wash. Why should I? Number four, I'll start washing when I'm older, when I really need soap. Number three, I really don't have time to wash. Because I'm too busy dealing with all the dirt and the difficulty in my life. I don't have time. Number two, the bathroom where they do the washing is so dingy. They haven't renovated that place in years. Number one, people who make the soap are only after your money. Only after your money. Now, I don't know how, personally to be helpful to people for whom that's the stopper, that list is the stopper. I mean, I guess I've got some clues, things I could do differently, we could do differently. Mainly, we want to pray that the people we know who have yet, not yet woken up to, to the need they have for spiritual cleansing will wake up for it. Right, mainly, we want to pray. You know, we can't beat them up. We just have to pray that God will open their heart to the goodness and the blessing that it is to have his living water cascading over them and washing and renewing their hopes and carrying them along in the movement of his grace. Uh, We just mainly want to pray for that. Um, But I think that there are also another set of reasons for why people don't go to church more often, find themselves in a circle like you're in this morning, more often, I think, as I've listened to people when I'm out beyond this building, that, that many people today don't come because they have encountered a closed door. They perceive the church to have a door that is closed, functionally speaking, to a person like them. Uh, for example, I think that a number of people do not come to church because they feel they could not get past what I will call the lifestyle door. The, the lifestyle door. Um, and this is the kind of thing that's going on in their head. My lifestyle is not compatible with those people. I mean, I like to smoke. I like to drink. I gamble now and then. I, I could not go there. And, and not be just thrown out by those people. I mean, you know, uh, I just would not fit in. Maybe if I ever changed those things, I'd try it. But until then, no. The door is shut for me. Or, or, or you know, maybe if I hadn't been divorced four times. Or, or, or if I hadn't had that trouble with the law. Or if I wasn't sort of into this pornography thing now and then. Uh, uh, I mean, I just don't have a lifestyle that belongs in a church. How do we change that? How do we open the door for those kinds of people? Because they matter to God. How do we help those people understand the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And all of us are patients, right? All of us have got issues that need washing, cleansing, renewing, fixing, repairing. And as I've said so often to you, God loves us just the way we are. Even with those issues, he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. But he welcomes people with with struggles and and lifestyle issues into the fellowship of his family. How can you get that word out to some of the people in your life beyond this, this building? For other people out there, it is the appearance door that seems close to them, that that just shuts them out of thinking they could ever do what you're doing here this morning. Uh, they think to themselves, I just, I don't appear. I just don't look like them. I don't look like, I don't dress like them, for one thing. Um, I, I, I have this body art on me. And these kind of, I've got, I wear jewelry in places, they don't wear jewelry. Uh, or, or, or I speak with another accent, or I'm of a different color, or I'm of a different age grouping, or I don't wear their sort of outfit. How do we get across to people who feel these things? That the church that you go to serves a God who deliberately created a world in technicolor, not 50 shades of gray. How do you get that word out? You know, I I, I talk sometimes with people who say, you know, what things that bugs me, it bugs me when I see these people coming into our church and they're dressed like they're, you know, going to the ball game. I mean, do they, would they go to see the president that way? Would they? And there's a part of me that goes, well, you have a point. I mean, if we really saw God for who he is in all of his glory and his holiness. I mean, it would bring up in us this passionate desire to be as beautiful and excellent and well-prepared as we possibly could be to stand in His presence as a sign of respect and worship. It would do that. But at the same time, He thought it was no problem to take off the robes of His glory and put on sandals and a carpenter's outfit. And walk around and hang out and worship alongside fishermen and prostitutes and people in tie-dye shirts or the equivalent of the day. How do we communicate to people that their appearance is not a problem for God? And it's not really at the end of the day a problem for us, for others of us. We are going to know we are a fully hospitable church. When you're in the fellowship hall or you're in the corridor and you overhear some 70-year-old guy in a beautiful suit talking to some teenager in a a T-shirt and the teenager says, Hey, man, cool suit. And the old man says, Love the tattoo. Not my style, but it looks good on you. We've got to open the lifestyle door. We've got to open the appearance door. And we've got to help people, thirdly, with the rules door. There are a lot of people that just don't feel comfortable going to a church because they don't know the rules. They don't know the rituals. They don't know the regulations. I went to church. I I, I wandered in there. I, I, I... checked it out. And, and, and all of a sudden they, everybody stood up. I didn't know we were supposed to stand up. So I stood up and then all of a sudden everybody sat down I didn't know I was supposed to sit down. And there I was standing up and I felt like an idiot. And they have these like secret hand signs and stuff at church. And I mean, what is this? I, I I don't understand it. I get embarrassed. I get uncomfortable. I don't even know where the bathrooms are in that place. How can we help people when they do dare to walk through the door? Get accustomed to the rhythms of the place and not feel bad. How can we welcome them when they come what we consider to be late and give them a seat instead of hold our place in the pew? How can we show hospitality, embracing hospitality to people as they learn the rhythms of the kingdom of God. The final door I want to encourage you to open wide for others is the relationship door, is the relationship door. I was out in the community uh, just a little while ago, a few weeks ago, and I, I was chatting with some people about current events, I was talking to these two young women, uh, probably in their 20s, maybe early 30s. I think they're 20s. We were a generation apart, a gender apart. Uh, we had no previous history, but I liked these two people. There was a, a good conversation. I said, you know what, I go to this church. It's called Christ Church of Oakbrook. I'd love it if you'd come, come visit there sometime. Would you come to, to our church? And if you do, I'll tell you where you can meet me. I will be right on this, right outside the sanctuary uh, after the church service. I will be standing right out there and you just come on up. And, And they said, I don't know anybody at that church. And I said, oh yeah, you do. You know me. And I will introduce you around. You come, we'll meet up right over there. Two weeks ago, they showed up. They came right up to me right out there. I hope that maybe they're out there someplace today. I hope you meet them. But you won't meet them. You won't meet them. If you're not trying. Do you know that 80% of the people that wind up in a church. Come there not because they heard the pastor on TV or radio or read a newspaper ad or saw the steeple as they were driving by in the street. I mean, there's a percentage that do, but 80% are there because somebody personally invited them in. Do you know that of that 80%, most of them will not stay in the church they visit. They will go out the back door as fast as they came in the front door. Why? They do not form relationships there. People greet them. Hi, we're friendly church. But nobody invites them for a cup of coffee. Nobody invites them to go out for dinner. Nobody invites them to sit down and tell them their story. Um, if we want to open the door of relationship, all of us, not just the staff, not just the natural extroverts, have got to reach out and form some relationships with some of the people around here. And And maybe some of the people sitting right next to you today before you leave this building will will become some of those burgeoning relationships in your life. Let me say in closing that I know how tempting it is to ignore everything I'm saying. Actually, I think statistically speaking, the potential of you ignoring what I'm going to say is higher because we're a big church than if we were a small church. Because when you're in a big church... It's a little overwhelming. You look around and you think, hey, we're doing great. I mean, look at all these people here. We must be a very friendly, warm and welcoming church, right? But God is not counting the number of cheeks in the seats. He isn't. Not to say we don't matter to him. We do matter to him. We're precious to him. But, 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 the, but God is the good shepherd, right? Right? Jesus tells us he counts the lost sheep. He's thinking of all the people who didn't make it here today. He's thinking of all those people who just, who saw the door closed to them for any one of these reasons I've been talking about. And he just longs for us to open the door for some of these precious people that he wants to bring in. Um, It's easy for us to become a club where we think mainly about how to keep it working for us, And like the innkeeper in the story, and I'm like this myself, I'm sometimes so busy trying to take care of the people that are already in, right? I don't even have time to think about those who aren't in, right? But then comes the knock on the Bethlehem door one night. And the moment of opportunity is there. And I risk missing it. I risk missing it. Don't miss Christmas. Okay? Don't miss the spirit of Christmas. Because if we do, we will miss the wonder of this God who left his heavenly lifestyle behind, who changed his appearance completely in order to connect with ordinary people who transcended so many social and religious Rules and conventions in order to open the doorway wide to a new relationship between humanity and him. Why would you choose? Why might you resolve to be unusually hospitable in an outreaching, risk-taking, people-embracing way in the days to come? Why might you and I choose to do that? Answer. Because he first did. Because he first did. Because he did. God went to such extraordinary lengths to throw open the door. Let's go and do likewise for others. Amen.